Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, filmed today on Monday, August 29th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Dan Kaplinger, one of The Motley Fool's top personal finance experts. How's it going, Dan? I'm doing good, Gabby. How are you doing today? I am doing excellent, thank you. Um, our episode today is really exciting. We figured that since kids are headed back to school or potentially already in school, depending on what state you're in, we would talk about financing their college education. Makes sense. And it's never too early to start with that because, you know, I mean, pretty much from birth, you've got the colleges and uh, educational institutions telling you it's never, you know, there's going to be a big bill at the end of the day that the sooner you get started, the more you're going to have that uh, compound interest working in your favor. Absolutely. And you should, you should definitely, the reason we're starting um, with the section that we're starting with is that hopefully you are saving. Um, saving is going to be the best way to reduce the, 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 the student loan debt that the kid is going to have at the end of college if they already have money going into it. Um, so, that being said, let's start with one of the most popular plans that there is out there, which is the 529 plan. This is also called the. These are called qualified tuition plans legally by the government. Um, the reason they're called 529 plans by everyone else is because they're governed by Section 529 of the tax code. Um, do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about how those are structured, Dan? Yeah, I mean, basically, 529 plans are generally offered by institutions authorized by each state. So there's more than 50 different plans out there. What many people don't realize is that just because your state offers a plan, that doesn't mean that you have to stick with that plan. A lot of people go outside of their state to get a plan. But basically what the 529 plan lets you do is it lets you contribute to this educational account. And as a result of that, the investment income inside of the 529, it doesn't get taxed along the way. It's tax deferred. A lot like a 401k plan for retirement except this is going for education. And then at the end of the day, if you use that 529 plan for qualified educational expenses, then you don't have to pay any taxes on any of the earnings. So it's a really good deal for tax savings um, in order to help you save and invest long-term for that up to 18, 19 years that you're accumulating money to put your kids through college. So just to be clear, contributions are not deductible, but Earnings are exempt from federal taxes and a lot of state taxes. That's going to vary from state to state. And That's exactly right. It's not. You're right. It's not like a 401k in the sense that contributions don't get you an upfront tax break. But what they do get you is that when you make those withdrawals later on, then you're going to be eligible. You get tax-free treatment for those earnings. And you're absolutely right. Some states, if you're a resident of that state, you can get some state income tax benefits as well. Some states actually do let you deduct your contribution or a certain amount of contribution against your state income tax, not against your federal tax. Though. Yeah, and just to be clear, this is something that someone was asking me the other day. If you are, say, a resident of Montana, but the Maryland 529 plan looks good to you, you can open one up in Maryland, and then your kid can go to school in North Carolina and use it. Like it doesn't really matter where you are. You can still use these plans. Absolutely uh, correct. You know, the, the way that the 529 plans is very it's sort of misleading in some ways because 
you know, those state names, they make it sound like you'd have to decide when your kid's two years old, oh, well, you know, they'll probably go to school in North Carolina, so I'll get the North Carolina plan. No, they understand you they don't want you having to pre-commit. And so the bulk of the 529 plans now, they're totally portable. They let you use the money for any educational institution, as long as it qualifies as a, you know, as a legitimate college or university, let you use that um, in pretty much any way that you see fit, anywhere you want. Um, so, question for you, is there a contribution limit on the 529 plans? There are contribution limits, but they're usually very high. Uh, they vary from state to state, and in general, you can, you can contribute as much as, it's generally between 200000 and 300000 over the course of all of your savings for one particular child in a given 529 plan. So for for practical purposes, it's virtually unlimited for most people in terms of how much you contribute to a 529. Now the timing of those contributions does make a difference. There are gift tax implications. And so it's something that you should pay attention to in terms of putting maximum amounts in on a yearly basis. That can get complicated in a hurry, but the general rule of thumb is if you're putting $14,000 or less in a 529 plan in any given year towards any one child, then you're perfectly fine. That is a significant chunk of change. Um, so the other thing that uh, that's really important to note about 529 plans is that you can only use these for qualified education expenses. Um, that means that if you were a really good saver, or maybe your kid gets a scholarship, um, and you don't have to pay for school at all, you can't you can take the money out of the the plan, but you're going to be hit with an earnings tax and a 10% withdrawal penalty. What you could what you could do instead is you could change the plan into someone else's name who might be going to college, or you can just leave it in there if you think your kid's going to go to grad school and not get a scholarship. Now, there is an exemption, Gabby, for the scholarship situation. In general, you're absolutely right. If you don't use that money for educational purposes and you withdraw it, then all the earnings become taxable. You get hit with that extra penalty on top. But at some point, Congress figured out that it wasn't entirely fair to penalize the people who were fortunate enough to get scholarships. And so what they did in that case was they waived that 10% penalty. You'll still pay income tax on the earnings that the money that went towards the scholarship came out of, but you don't have to hit that 10% penalty as well. So that's one benefit. Still a good idea. Anytime, any chance you can get that scholarship, that's always, that's always the best move. And you're absolutely right. If you have more than one child, you can change the beneficiary of the 529 plan to the other child and not have to pay any penalties on that as well. So, um, this is totally a matter of opinion, but are there any 529 plans that you that you think are, are good to look into? Well, in general, the best 529 plans are the ones that have the lowest costs. Now, you've heard us talk in previous shows about 401k plans that some employers have low-cost 401ks, some employers have high-cost 401ks. The exact same thing is true in the 529 plan world. And it's something that you have to look really at each individual state, figure out, okay, are they charging me a lot? Are they charging me a little bit? All the 529 plans will charge you an annual fee that's based on the percent on a percentage of the amount of money that you have under management. 
The best situation is one where you can keep those expenses down to about one quarter of 1% or less. But I've seen some plans that start to approach 1% or even more. And that's something that you really need to be careful about. You can make it smart to look at a state, even outside your own state, if you can end up saving money in the long run. Because as small as those percentages sound, over 15, 16, 18, 20 years, they really do add up. Absolutely. So let's talk about a couple other savings accounts that are available for for parents. Um, custodial accounts, I think, are the other most popular option besides five twenty nine plans. That's right. And basically, what a custodial account is is you opening up an investment account on behalf of your child. Most of these are set up under what's called the Uniform Transfer to Minors Act or the Uniform Gift to Minors Act. It's basically something where you, the parent, have investing control over the account. There's no tax benefits really in terms of you know tax-free treatment of earnings. The earnings on the investment account is up to a certain amount is taxable to the child at the child's tax rate, which is almost always lower than the parent's tax rate. Above a certain amount, the income gets treated as the parent's income for tax purposes, which means that you end up paying the tax at the higher amount. Now, the reason why people like custodial accounts is there's no limitation on what you can invest in. 529 plans, the 529 plan itself dictates what your investment options are. And so if you wanna invest in something else, you're out of luck. With a custodial account, you can invest in whatever you want to. You can get a, a, an account with a fund company, ETF company, with a regular broker, you can buy individual stocks and bonds and other investments. So you can do pretty much whatever you want. The downside of the custodial account, there's a couple. One is that for financial aid purposes, the custodial account is treated as the child's assets. And so when it comes time to qualify for financial aid, the school will expect the child to pay more of that money out of their account than they expect parents to contribute on the child's behalf. The other downside of the custodial account is that when the child reaches the age of majority, usually 18 years old in most states, the parent has to turn it over to the child. Parent no longer has the legal right to exercise control over the money in the custodial account. So there's no guarantee that the child needs to use it for college. Really, from a legal standpoint, can spend it on whatever they want. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and for some kids, that'll, that'll work out great. And for other kids, that would work out terribly. Um, I'm just just thinking about some people that I've known in my past. <laughs> um, exactly, and that's that's one reason why the 529 plan is as popular as it is because it doesn't. Ha it, you get to keep control as the parent beyond 18, beyond 21. It's it's still pretty much in your control, and it goes directly to the educational expenses. So the third plan we're going to talk about is the Coverdell account, and this is probably the least popular of them all, but um, people still use them, so I thought that we would mention it. Um, the reason that it's not very popular is that the total contribution limit for the Coverdell plan is $2,000, and that's like total. So you can't have you can have more than one Coverdell account for a kid, but it doesn't matter because you can't contribute more than $2,000 to that child, to that beneficiary total over the course of the year. So, say, like, grandma has a Coverdell account and the parents have a Coverdell account. They have to figure it out so that they don't exceed that that amount. Um, it also yeah, has... It's, uh -huh. it's a per-year thing, and it's something that, you know, like, like once upon a time, that $2,000 was 
equal to what the maximums allowed for IRA contributions, other sorts of contributions were. For whatever reason, Congress didn't raise that limit to uh, keep up with inflation the same way that IRA contributions do. So while now you can contribute 5,500, 6,500 for IRAs, that 2,000 limit is still there. And most people find, again, the 529 plan with the much higher contribution limits lets you, lets you make a real dent in how much the total cost of college is going to be. You know, I mean, we're up to several hundred thousand dollars over the course of a four-year program now. And so, you know, like $2,000 a year is nice, uh, but it's, it's not enough to get the job done for most people. Yeah, and it's not just that, but there's income limitations. So, in theory, if you're an individual that makes more than $110,000 a year or a couple that makes more than $220,000 a year, you can't contribute to these at all. And people have circumvented that by letting the kids open it up in their own name um, and them contributing to it. But like, it's just kind of a headache that a lot of people don't really need. What was interesting to me, though, is that certain elementary and secondary schools also qualify for Coverdell accounts. So, like, you can use the money in them to pay for a private school if you want to. Right, private school, high school tuition, or something like that. But I mean, the lack of popularity, you can see how unpopular these are by the fact that even some major financial institutions, they don't even offer them anymore. It can be hard to find a place that will let you open a new Coverdell account. So really, in general, you're stuck with either the 529 or opening up a custodial account. Yeah. So. Let's say that you've saved and there's still not quite enough and your kid's about to go to college. Um, There's a few things that you should do. Uh, The first thing is to fill out the FAFSA, which is it stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Um, And this is something that you need to fill out every year. I knew a kid in college who thought that you only filled it out one time and sophomore year there, there was a rude awakening. Um, and you want to fill that out as soon as possible after January 1st. And if possible, you want to file your taxes first. Yeah, because a lot of the information you're going to use on that financial aid form, it, it looks a lot like a tax return in many ways. I mean, it's asking you for income information, for asset information. And yeah, the sooner that you get it completed, the sooner you can kind of check the box off as far as that aspect of running through your college or university's financial aid program so they can calculate how much money they're going to be willing to give you in your financial aid package. Yeah. And the other thing um, to keep in mind is that you need to fill out the FAFSA, I believe, if you're going to take out federal loans. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's something that almost all financial aid programs, you know, I can't think of a situation where, you, where there's a college or university that, that doesn't use that form. Sometimes, they're going to ask for supplemental information that's specific to that, like whatever that college or university wants. But it's pretty much uniform at this point where everybody expects that FAFSA. And that's one of the reasons is that the gateway to opening up some of the federal funding for, uh, for funding sources for education, it hinges on the student and the student's family having filled out that information correctly. Yeah, and um, the reason that we're harping on this so much is that federal loans in general are a much better idea than private student loans, and that's because interest rates on federal loans tend to be much lower. That's right. There's also the benefit. Some federal loans 
have uh, deferment provisions where they'll actually give you an interest-free period um, while you're in school, even sometimes for a limited period of time after you come out of school. Uh, most private loans don't have that sort of thing. They might not make you make payments, but the interest is kind of accumulating in the background so that when you do start making those payments, it's on a higher amount because that interest has been accumulating. So yeah, the federal programs in general, lower rates, better repayment terms, um, some qualifications for, uh, you know, for better treatment, and also some eligibility for various types of loan forgiveness programs, depending on, you know, what career path you decide to follow after you come out of school, uh, a loan forgiveness can be an option as well. Yeah, let's just chat about that real quick. Like the three main programs that uh, the federal government offers for loan forgiveness, and this only applies to federal loans. So if you have private loans on top of your federal loans, like you still have to pay those off. Um, yeah. But there's the public service loan forgiveness program. Um, loans are forgiven after making 120 qualifying monthly payments. So that's 10 years worth of payments while working full time for a qualifying employer. And those tend to be nonprofits, the government. They have a whole list of, of places that you can work where, where you would qualify for this. Um, there's teacher loan forgiveness. Uh, you need to make five consecutive years of payments, um, and you need to work for at least five years in low income public schools, um, which is, you know, I mean, an option you can you can you can you can do. Um, and they offer up to seventeen thousand five hundred dollars in direct loans or Stafford loan forgiveness. And while you qualify for the teacher loan forgiveness, you also qualify at the same time for public service loan forgiveness if you just work for another five more years. Yep. And then there's also the Perkins loan cancellation. And um, if you have a Perkins loan, and Perkins loans are given to students who have extraordinary financial need, um, you can have up to 100% of your loan forgiven if they work in public service for up to five years. And if you're wondering about what kind of jobs qualify for this, you just need to go online. The government has plenty of resources available for you to figure this out. But there's also been a lot of talk during the recent presidential election campaign about just how overwhelming student loan debt is in general. Um, there's going to be a big political push, especially as uh, you know the current generation of students who are coming through school, who are five years, ten years out of school, um, as they start to get politically mobilized. I think you can expect to see a lot of pressure to try to expand some of these forgiveness programs because the impact that the large amounts of debt that people are coming out of school with it's having an impact on the economy. I mean, people are delaying buying homes longer than they did, living with their parents more. We've even seen some studies that say people are delaying having families longer because they're buried under this debt and they don't want to start a family until they have more financial stability in their lives to be able to cover, you know, the the expenses of having a child. And you know, and hopefully, have put their student loan stuff behind them by that point. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if you file for bankruptcy, that doesn't apply to your student loans, correct? It's a much higher barrier to have student loan debt discharged in bankruptcy. It's not. It's not a hundred percent never, but it's a lot harder to convince a bankruptcy court that um, that you can get them extinguished. And so for the most part, yes, even if you're successful in having credit card debt, you know, a, a, a car loan debt, that kind of thing extinguished in a bankruptcy proceeding, 
uh, the student loan lender is still going to be able to come back and say, yes, you filed for bankruptcy, but uh, because of this federal provision, uh, we're still going to be able to collect going forward on that. Yeah, so this is why at the beginning of the show we were emphasizing saving so much because if you can have smaller loans, that's definitely the better option. Um, and of course, yeah. talking about financial aid, I think we covered FAFSA, federal loans over private loans. Um, the other thing to consider is scholarships. It's never been easier to find scholarships, which means it's also probably harder to get them because so many other people are applying for them. But if you go online and search for scholarships, I'm sure you can find something. I believe they even give out a scholarship for being left-handed. Um, you have to apply, and I'm sure a lot of left-handed people apply, but it's there. There's so many, so many. In all seriousness, I mean, you know, it, it's it's a confusing thing that that a lot of people get into trouble with. You know, they see a size of a financial aid package, and they just compare it based on the size, and they don't look into well, how much of it is a grant or a scholarship that they just don't have to pay, versus how much of it is loans. And I've seen people make mistakes, and they say, well, you know, this school gave me forty thousand, and this other school gave me thirty thousand. But when you ask them, well, how much was loans and how much was grants, it, it turned out they would have been better off taking the smaller package because more of it was a more of it was an outright gift that they would never have to pay back. Yeah, and I just want to take a moment um, to talk to college students out there. Um, at the end of every semester, I would receive emails from students saying, "You can't give me a D. I'll lose my financial aid." And that always killed me because I know that there's professors out there who are who aren't great about helping, but I would literally meet you in a coffee shop. I would I would meet you after hours as like I would give so much help. Um, so make sure that you do the work to get the good grades. Like don't don't blow off the opportunity that you've been given because you're blowing off you're making it very very expensive for yourself. Yeah. So um, after that heartfelt message, let's talk <laughs> about taxes. <laughs> Well, the, the, the silver lining in all this is that the federal government understands how expensive it is to go to college. And there are a number of tax breaks that a lot of people can take advantage of in order to reduce the cost, offset the cost a little bit. Some of them hit while you're in school. Others of them apply after you're through school trying to pay those student loans off. And the ones that, that, that you get while you're in school are some of the biggest ones, correct? That's right. Yeah, it's things like the, uh, the American Opportunity Tax Credit uh, for up to four years of undergraduate education. Um, you know, that can, that can often be the largest because it'll pay 100% of up to 2000 a year and then 25% of the next 2000 a year. So up to a maximum of $2,500. Um, for a maximum of four years, do the math, that's $10,000 towards your college education, um, subject to income limits and that kind of thing, but it's readily available for a lot of people. And Beyond undergraduate, uh, there's another credit called the Lifetime Learning Credit. It's not quite as generous because it only applies to a smaller percentage of the amount that you pay. It's up to 20% of the first $10,000 that you pay for education over the course of a year. Uh, the benefit here is that it's not just limited to undergrad. It can be graduate school. It can be work training related uh, things later in your career. That whole The whole name of lifetime learning is designed to 
emphasize just how much more flexible that is. So looking at those two credits, they can make a big dent in how much that you are having to pay out of pocket because the government's coming back and putting some back in your pocket. Yeah, I know that sometimes when people do their taxes, especially younger people, um, they look at them and they're so overwhelmed. They're just like, "I'm just going to take the standard deduction. I'm not even going to like try and do any of these other things." But they can really help you out. Um, so keep an eye out for that when you're filing your taxes this year. You got it. Um, so uh, the other thing that we wanted to to, to touch on briefly is. Um, you have your student loans, you've graduated from college, um, whatever is not eligible for forgiveness or whatever, um, you have to pay off. And sometimes people get overwhelmed with that. And there are a few options you have if you are overwhelmed. Um, first and foremost, what I really encourage you to reach out to your creditors, because um, ultimately it's in their best interest for them to get paid. Um, but they will work with you to help you make a payment schedule that works for the both of you so that you don't just default and they just don't get any money at all. Yeah, I mean it's in everybody's interest, it's in the creditor's interest to get some money back, you know? So any arrangements that they can make that results in you making some payments is better than 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 the reality of getting zero payments back from you because you're just totally overwhelmed and can't and and can't afford to deal with it. Yeah. And then the other thing that I really encourage you to think about is debt consolidation, um, which is basically like they take all of your loans and bundle them. Um, and in theory, you can you can end up paying a lower interest on it afterwards. Yeah, you got to be really careful with that because there are reputable consolidation outfits and there are unreputable consolidation providers. And the real question that you have to look at very closely is, what the makeup of your loans is currently. If you have a very, if you're heavily with private student loans, then consolidation is a lot more likely to make sense just because, you know, the private loans aren't all that good to begin with. So you don't really have a whole lot to lose with consolidation. Um, when you have a lot of federal loans, however, you really need to look closely before you consolidate. And the questions you need to be asking the institution you're working with is, are you going to lose the benefits of these federal loans? Are you going to lose interest deferment? Are you going to lose the opportunity to have loan forgiveness? If the answer is yes, and you're in the category of people that would have taken advantage of those provisions, then you're going to really want to think twice before you consolidate and give those up all in exchange for you know what can be a smaller monthly payment. Yeah. The other thing to look closely at is, most consolidation loans, they'll offer you the smaller monthly payment, but what they don't really highlight is that the way they get you the smaller payment is often by extending the period of the loan a lot longer. And so I've seen situations where what would have been a five-year or a 10-year loan repayment period turns into a 20-year loan repayment period. And yes, you got smaller payments, but when you look at the total amount of interest you paid over the lifetime of your loans, it skyrockets after these consolidations because you extended that period so much longer. Yeah, and part of the reason that you could potentially lose benefits if you have federal loans is because the way because of the way consolidation works, it's basically a company buying your debt and you promising to repay them rather than the original creditors, yep. um, which is how you end up kind of in these messes. And you mentioned earlier that there's good consolidation companies and bad consolidation companies. Can you kind of highlight what you should look for when you're 
when you're looking for a consolidator? One of the things that is ideal is if you have a federal loan provider that you're already working with, the odds are much better that if that federal loan provider reaches out to you to uh, make consolidation recommendations, that they're going to have the big picture there. Because you know they've already been vetted by the federal government to become eligible to give these federal loans. And so in general, they're a little bit more reputable. On the other hand, if you're working with a private loan provider, they're always going to be looking for ways to get more of a loan balance under their umbrella, even if it's not necessarily the best decision for you. So, you know, you can't have a blanket rule of, well, all federal loan providers are good, all private loan providers are bad. Often it's the same institution. But just being aware of the situation, just being, if, if you can sense that they understand the issues involved, that they understand that consolidation is not always the right answer, that's the best sign that you have that they're a provider that can give you the consultation that you really need to make, a, to make the right decision for you. Yeah. Um, so this is this has been a journey that we've taken you through from the birth of your child when we hope that you start saving to them applying for college and financial aid to what you should do to manage your student loan debt afterwards. Um, if you guys have any questions, definitely let us know. Um, and if I could ask our listeners to provide some feedback on the length of our episodes, I know that they all vary wildly across industry focus. Um, but if you have any opinions, longer, shorter just right, like Goldilocks, that would be great. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Gabby. It's really fun to be with you. Thanks. Um, And thank you, Austin Morgan. I hope that you are not battling heavy student loan debt. He's shaking his head now. I'm relieved for him. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and I hope everyone has a great week. 